the untold part of Chicago's industrialization, which, you know, set the pattern for industrialization for the entire country and the globe, is Indiana. So it's, it's not that the state is marginal to the side of this, you know, more famous story. It's that it's actually integral and laid not just the foundation, but was the natural resource, to put it that way, of industrialization for uh, Chicago and, you know, spanning up from there the globe. Scholar and writer Eva Tomasula E. Garcia says if we want to understand global industrialization, Indiana's a good place to start. This week on Interstates, how the oil and gas boom in northwest Indiana a century ago is still echoing today. That's coming up right after this. There's something about gazing out on a body of water that goes to the horizon that reminds you of the vast inhumanness of so much of the planet. I was struck by that last summer at the Indiana Dunes on the shore of Lake Michigan. When the water rises up to the horizon like that, filling your vision, it's not hard to imagine the existential panic Captain Ahab's youngest sailor felt when he went overboard in a whale fight. The rest of the crew went off chasing the whale, and there he was, bobbing up and down with nothing but ocean around. Don't worry, he got rescued. But in the hour he was alone in the ocean, something changed in him. While he had floated there, surrounded on all sides by undulating water ready to engulf him, the sea had jeeringly kept his body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. I was less likely to be engulfed by the inhuman expanse of the sea because I was on the shore, surrounded by giant umbrellas, beach balls, and plenty of sunscreened humans. Plus, out at the farthest edge of the coast, I could see the smokestacks of the steel industry. They were strangely grounding, those giant structures at the end of my vision. The sight kept the infinite of my soul from drowning, but probably because it felt like they were jeering at me. Sometimes, if you want to be acknowledged, jeering is what you settle for. The smokestacks reminded me of another way I'm engulfed. We're all engulfed. In a world run by fossil fuels. Which is, you know, not great. Not just because they're heating the planet up. Also because fossil fuel production takes land and labor and leaves an immense amount of pollution in the communities that surround it. So jeering might be the right word, too, for how those smokestacks relate to the region around them. The Calumet today, if you've ever been to the Indiana Dunes or taken the South Shore train, um, you'll know it as... Gary, Hammond, Michigan City, kind of these cities that are dominated by smokestacks, um, air that you can see <laughs> and taste because it's so dirty, kind of a vague, ominous cloud on the highway that you might see in the distance. Um, these are areas that were absolutely dominated for over 100 years by some of the um dirtiest industrial industries really in the world. That's Eva Tomasula E. Garcia. She's a writer and scholar who's been doing research on the region, and she published an article in Belt magazine not too long ago about the legacy of Indiana's oil and gas industry. So Gary was home to, is still home to the uh, U.S. Steel Gary Works, which was the largest steel mill in the entire world for many years, um, and I believe is still the largest uh, domestic um, steel mill. Whiting, Indiana, home of um, Standard Oil, which was Rockefeller's kind of uh, oil monopoly, has had the uh, oil refinery there since I believe 1901. So these are, you know, industries, early industries, some you know, pretty famous names um, when thinking of the kind of industrial history of the of the country and the world that have really dominated the landscape for for decades, and it's also um, where you might point to if you're thinking about the quote unquote Rust Belt or you know, deindustrialization, which I think we're we're going to talk about. I think it's a more complicated kind of history and uh, than that that word would suggest, but. In the 1980s, when capital shifted to the current neoliberal financialized model that we're living under now, and automation happened, many of these uh, steel mills and you know other industries either collapsed or scaled back to the point where 
thousands and thousands of people lost jobs. Ava has a personal stake in all this. It's not just the economy that's affected her family. We've been kind of in the Calumet area for about four generations on either side of my family. And like anyone that has intersected with the heavy industries that you know, so shape the history of the, the area, um, family histories are also replete with cancers, uh, dementia, and uh, you know both my grandfathers worked in, one grandfather worked in inland steel, another one worked at a, a Versin uh, steel press. And cancer has been a, kind of a, a sideline of a family history for many years. So my, my mom's family is Mexican, my dad's family is uh, Slovak and, and Polish. And so his family is more of a this first generation of Eastern Europeans that worked in these incredibly toxic industries that really in- industrialized the quote-unquote modern world. And then my mom's family is from more of a, a slightly later generation of workers that um, found their way to the, to the region. Eva, by the way, is a grad student in Columbia University's anthropology department. Among the many insights I got from Eva's article was that our fair state of Indiana was an integral part of global industrialization. That's because Chicago set the pattern for industrializing the world, and Indiana was where a lot of the natural resources came from for Chicago's industrialization. That means digging into Indiana's industrial past is a good way to understand how geology and history are totally intertwined, and how developments in one place, northern Indiana, could play a part in engulfing the whole planet in industrial fossil fuels way down the road. So, let's start with the discovery of natural gas in Indiana. It was 1876 in Eaton, a rural town in the eastern part of the state. Coal miners were prospecting. They had steam-powered machinery. I'm picturing something like Mike Mulligan's steam shovel. They were digging into the rock. That's flaking, flying everywhere around them. They were 600 feet down when they heard an incredibly loud bang. bang. And then the just the foulest smell you could imagine. They clawed their way out of the hole and ran. They had concluded what any reasonable person would have concluded. They thought that they had obviously dug so deep that they had found hell. They were smelling sulfur and hellfire. So they plugged the hole, told the guy who'd put up the money for this venture, Sorry, we're not coming back. And they abandoned the place. The hole sat there for 10 years. Then, in January of 1886, newspapers reported that an ocean of gas had been discovered one state over. The Cargwell in Ohio produced millions of cubic feet of gas per day. That landowner from Eaton visited the well, and he recognized the stench. He rushed home, pulled together investors and workers, and by the summer, as they passed the 900-foot mark, gas burst through. What they had found was the, the Trenton gas field, which was, um, at the time that they had tapped at the largest gas field, natural gas reservoir in the entire world. There's uh, over 5,000 square miles Within a few years, hundreds of companies would be drilling across the Trenton gas field. Cities grew up around gas wells. It was boom times for gas prospectors. And, you know, 10 years isn't that long. So it's hard to believe that's all it took to go from miners convinced they'd reached the mouth of hell to investors realizing they had a very lucrative product under their feet. But it was the late 19th century. Science was busy. What people thought about the deep earth how old the earth was, all these things were very, very much changing. And changing due to a combination of forces we tend to think of as separate. I'm not sure if science has ever been totally pure, but it's maybe not surprising that geology in the 19th century was as much about finding natural resources as it was about figuring out the age of the earth. Still true, by the way. And in 19th century Indiana, science and industry were working to give birth to what we now think of as the modern world the fossil fuel economy was being born in Indiana. It's not as if people had never noticed oil and gas before they became industrial products. The Seneca people, you know, in Pennsylvania, where the, the first oil strike happened in the, in the country, had a very much a working knowledge of oil, you know, used it as a mosquito repellent um, in, and other purposes. There's you know, French Jesuit missionary records, you know, talking about how who they called the Erie people, used 
you know, these substances that, that bubbled up from, from oil seeps, uh, from, you know, from, from different streams. White colonists, keeping up their own traditions, saw magic in those indigenous practices. You can see a lot of those Seneca applications of oil being really aped by, um, you know, Victorian settler and colonists um, after the fact in the through the 1830s, 1840s, when kind of the major genocide of, of Native people in Indiana really got underway simultaneously. You could buy what, you know, Victorian salespeople would call Seneca oil or rock oil, which they were advertising as a uh, natural cure-all that you would drink. And, and today we would know that it's probably creek water mixed with oil with some, some gas thrown in. Um, and I think it was advertised as something that you could also, you could lubricate your machinery with it um, also. <laughs> But beyond that, it was not thought about in the way that we would name and recognize oil and gas now as, you know, sources of fuel, stuff you buy, (laughs) stuff that turns your lights on. Mostly. By the 19th century, there were enough people who thought they could make a buck. People had kind of experimented with gas taps um, in the U.S. as early as the 1600s. Um, I think uh, normally when people talk about, you know, the history of natural gas extraction, they'll they'll mention William Hart, um, who in 1821 tied some logs together with rags. Um, He had found a uh, a natural gas kind of fissure and tried to transport, you know, that way, which, which didn't work too well. 1859, we get the first oil strike in the country, and all of a sudden it's a mad rush. You know, there's a, a few scientists who uh, demonstrate that oil, that natural oil, can be used to burn lamps with. This is also the, you know, the same time period that the whaling industry is declining in the U.S. They've just literally killed all the whales. And so there's a real fervor in the search for other sources of fuel. This is also obviously when we think about this kind of early industrialization in the country. All of that is happening also. And so it was kind of in this kind of mixture of um, new ideas and quote-unquote discoveries that people start realizing that gas is a fuel source or can be used as one. Um, It's not just, you know, the thing that you have to watch out for when you found oil or coal or something else, uh, but this is something that you can sell. And this is something, you know, uh, at least the narrative sold to a lot of farming communities that people were then kind of scrabbling over trying to get rights to what might be underneath their soil. This is something that can industrialize your community and bring money in, which we'll see as a a storyline that's been pitched many, many, many times to many people throughout many different periods of time. And the possibility of selling the stuff brings us back to the Cargwell in Ohio in 1886. These gas discoveries had become exciting. Suddenly, gas pouring out of the ground promised piles of money and, as Ava said, development. The gas seemed endless, and what with newspapers and photography, it was a new age of spectacle, too. So when the Cargwell was discovered in Ohio, people figured... Why not set a match to it? So that means an enormous column of fire, uh, which is lit gas that was over 70 feet high, just pouring out of the earth, uh, visible from 30 miles away. It wasn't just in Ohio. Lighting gas wells was pretty standard practice at the time. Fire draws people in. It becomes immediately a kind of industrial tourism attraction. So this is something like very, very popular um, in the 19th century when, as we'll see later, when kind of factories are developing outside of Chicago and in northwest Indiana, there'd be, uh, you know, trolley, train and other conveyances of uh, tourists from Chicago to go look at these things, look at these factories, look at these signs of industry. And so in Ohio, this enormous flaming column of fire (laughs) of lit natural gas becomes one of these attractions. And George Carter was the name of the person who owned the land where hell had been breached in Indiana, is one of the tourists that goes and sees the Cargwell. As you know, he rushes back to the mouth of hell that he's claimed. He sees it differently now, digs farther down, and bang, 
gas in Indiana. And then um, the night of September 15th, 1886, they, they do the same thing, touch a match towards the uh, upward gust of this gas, setting a flame. Now, what by most records was a hundred foot fiery column that to them meant money, wealth, the future. That future was premised on new abilities to discover and develop new resources. But Ava reminds us that we should think about what language we're using. Development and discovery are one way to describe what was going on. If we think of, uh, you know, this language of industry, which is the same language as, as science, of where we're developing, we're discovering things, that's a nice way of talking about extraction, <laughs> really. You know, these are not discoveries, they're not developments. Um, it's kind of theft more than anything. And when you um, say extraction, can you just tease out mm-hmm. the different kinds of things that, that, that you mean by that Sure. Word? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's similarly to how the Calumet, in the Calumet today, extractive industries predominate, I would say. And I would include in that both oil refinement, steel production, other kinds of um, chemical fabrication, which are extractive industries, meaning you're, you're taking something from the earth and fabricating it um, into a, you know, a a kind of product, but also payday loans, uh, you know, casinos, things, uh, industries that are very much predicated on extracting uh, wealth from the people who live in the area, or um, thinking even larger about, um, you know, extraction of health and how uh, you know, these industries are, are working off of very much, uh, you know, it's no exaggeration to say the sweat and blood um, and life of, you know, the people that are developing brain cancer, developing asthma, developing kind of slower diseases like dementia from years of um, living and working in this area. A century ago, it probably didn't occur to anyone that that was the future they were heading to. At the time, the ability to extract gas and oil was promising a different future. Wealth coming from industry and development. We'll hear how that played out geographically in our future after a quick break. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm talking with scholar Eva Tomasula y Garcia about how Northwest Indiana industrialized in the early 20th century. The heart of the industrial future was Chicago, but Chicago needed fuel and raw materials. Gary and smaller cities in Indiana had plenty of those, so they pulled industry toward them like a magnet. Yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, once a company moves there, they start building industrial infrastructure, which will attract another company, which attracts another one. So these kind of first primary industries are drawn by the natural gas. But then we see, you know, companies like um, Standard Oil doing the, the first geological survey of Indiana, because they're interested in what else is there that they can use. Which is um, another good example of the way geology and is mixed with industrial extraction. Absolutely. So the U.S. Steel Corporation was Rockefeller's uh, you know, famous um, many-tentacled monopoly of oil in the United States. Um, he set up his Indiana subsidiary, Standard Oil of Indiana, in... So Standard Oil of Indiana, the Indiana subsidiary of uh, the Rockefeller monopoly, was formed in 1889. And they kind of had marketing territory of the entire Midwest, and they set up shop in Whiting, Indiana. So since really 1901, there's been an oil refinery operating in, in this part of the country. It was absolutely enormous. They had a huge research component. And actually, if you look at the um, Amoco oil logo that we know today, um, Amoco later after the Standard Oil kind of monopoly is broken up in, in 1911, it, you know, through various subsequent changes becomes uh, BP Amoco, which maybe we'll talk about later. But the, the, the torch in the Amoco logo is from the Indiana state flag. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Um, Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
that's actually a good symbol for Indiana's significance more generally. And since the gas and oil underneath Indiana helped industrialize the globe, it also means the state's geological resources affected where corporations landed and where cities and towns ended up and who moved to those cities and towns and who had what kinds of jobs and how different groups of people related to each other. It's all connected. This is what someone might call a a geosocial history, which means that when we're talking about infrastructure, we're not just talking about rocks and, and dirt. The social is always, always, always part of what we might divide up and call the geological and vice versa. So we're talking about migration patterns. We're talking about race and uh, how different kinds of racisms are, are formed out of this kind of history, too. So it's always that we need to be thinking about landscape as not just the trees and grass, but it's literally also inclusive of what kinds of people were allowed to live on, you know, amongst these trees and, and grass. The question of who got to live where in the landscape of Northwest Indiana played out especially clearly in Gary. So Gary, Indiana, was a city actually completely built by a corporation. The U.S. Steel Corporation created Gary, Indiana, named after Judge Gary, who was on their board and later became president of, uh, of the mill. In the 19, early 1900s, it was on the, what they would have called undeveloped shores of Lake Michigan, east of Chicago. And it was Indiana Duneland. Um, if you've ever been to the Indiana Dunes, um, you, you know what it looks like. This is uh, marshes, lagoons, and a lot of sand. As cities like Chicago were growing in the 19th century, there was a lot of hand-wringing about people living in crowded areas around industries. Americans were looking at England and seeing the poverty in places like Birmingham and London and thinking, this is what's coming to the U.S. This is, of course, also the the same period as a lot of these quote-unquote social concerns get routed into eugenics programs. So Indiana is the first state to have legally codified eugenics laws, which is the supposed control and keeping of a kind of the genetic stock of a population. So uh, very much a white supremacist ideology of keeping uh, whiteness, quote unquote, pure and any kind of impurity, which would not just be kind of to them racial impurity, but also what they would think of as a socially unhygienic manifestation such as a criminality, mental illness, all of this is kind of lumped together and seen as products that could be controlled out of a population. And so um, social reformers operating in a very kind of eugenicist frame of mind were interested in keeping these kinds of forces out of cities and worried about the kind of how industrialism, uh, people living close together, what they would have thought of as racial mixing and other things would then result in a, uh, an impure population. So in Indiana, you'd have things like, you know, throughout the even the 20th century, I think of uh, things like better baby contests at state fairs where you would not only show your pigs and chickens, but you could uh, show off your white, blue-eyed baby and see if it could win a prize uh, for being a kind of genetically superior child. Yeah, so these kinds of ideologies are very much in the air, um, and they're very much in the air when people are thinking about um, these new industrial cities and kind of fears about them also. Along with the quote-unquote utopian potential of the human race, there was also the utopian potential of cities focused on industry. As with eugenics, these geographical fantasies were also shaped by race and class. So what you might call industrial utopianism. And this is the idea that through control, which as we've seen, often becomes then this kind of racist, eugenicist-minded social control, And through city planning and through the kind of development of ideas like hygiene and the development of like public health, um, you know, as a discipline, people thought that if you arranged your city correctly and controlled it correctly, 
and planned how far the houses are away from each other, how much park space there is, etc., that you could not only control your population, but you could model how people were. You could create new people. So we might see something like Pullman, Illinois, now part of Chicago, which was founded by the Pullman Company, the makers of the luxury railroad cars. It's a complete planned city where, you know, there was the company town where all the workers would live in, planned to the T. There's many examples of kind of, you know, planned cities that companies built um, and were interested in um, avoiding what they would think of as, uh, you know, strikes, which has to do with white ethnic discontent, criminal element in their their population, etc. So they thought through city planning and through the kind of industrial mindset of industrialization applied not just to, you know, the fabrication of materials, but the fabrication of people too, um, that you could have a kind of utopian city. Crucially, as Ava said, the utopian cities would be places where the workers never went on strike. There's something a bit Truman Show about all that. But just as the facade in the Truman Show inevitably falls apart, so do the utopian planners' plans to engineer strikes out of existence. Because these companies were still bloodthirsty, still absolutely rapaciously using up their workers' lives. And so by the time that Gary is built on the shores of Lake Michigan, the company has abandoned this kind of uh, industrial utopianism completely. They're more interested in creating a fortress company, a fortress steel plant that when strikes happen can kind of draw up its bridges and moats and uh, be completely protected. So they don't care at all about the what you could say are the the you know the slightly positive parts of uh, city planning that these kind of corporate citizens of the past were more interested in uh, corporate citizens in quotes. So the U.S. Steel Corporation is not interested in schools. They're not interested in sanitary water or housing for their workers. Uh, they purposefully build the steel mill so that it will be surrounded by, you know, the Calumet River and Lake Michigan, and they can kind of have it there protected, protect their investment, and um, kind of keep their rabble-rousing, potentially striking uh, workers out when the time comes. And that's exactly what they do. So there's a lot of narratives of Gary about us uh, still being painted as the city of the century, the city of the future, this futuristic utopian city that was built, people kept saying, out of thin air, built out of the sand. I believe they moved 11 million cubic tons of sand uh, to build Gary. But it just did not match with the reality of the city, which was a kind of complete abandonment to, you know, private capital to make money off of people and house them as cheaply as possible. Gary, the Calumet area surrounding it on the south side of Chicago, was all fueled by cheap labor provided mostly by Eastern European white ethnic immigrants. This is kind of the my dad's side of the family, um, Serbian, Polish, Slovak, Hungarian, you know, guys who, who came in and, um, you know, really were used up by these factories. With the First World War, um, European immigration to the U.S. ended abruptly. And so the, these mill owners were just absolutely anxious to find more, you know, expendable to them bodies to feed to their mills. And in Indiana, they took a different approach than the East Coast, which was still, you know, the mills there absolutely 100% segregated. And they began to hire uh, black workers or try to lure black workers as strike breakers in huge numbers. So U.S. Steel also had a plant in Alabama that they were primarily trying to draw people from. This was obviously a calculated move, um, and they're thinking about their profit more than anything. So the war had created an industrial boom. So workers' power was at an, an all-time high. Simultaneously, kind of in backlash to this workers' power's growth, um, 
we're talking about the first red scare in the United States. So not the, you know, 1950s Arthur Miller uh, kind of red scare, but the, the one before then, 1917, Russian Revolution happens. Uh, all these Eastern European workers get seen as, you know, anarchists, communists, you know, and painted as such um, to try to strike a blow to the labor movement. So this really sets the scene for 1919 when the AFL organized a countrywide steel strike. They were fighting for an eight-hour workday, protection from literal death on the workplace, um, higher wages, union recognition. So this is part of the larger kind of Chicago area labor story, which um, has had such an enormous impact on every workplace um, in the country. So the strike shut down half of the entire steel production in the country, everywhere from Colorado, West Virginia, Ohio, New York, um, to Indiana uh, was shut down. And so in Gary, mill management started bringing in literal train loads and ore barge boatloads from their other mills in the South to to fill the Gary plant. And so these are guys that um, are being brought in most likely not willingly, they have enormous mass of um, angry white workers that um, are literally ready to kill them and being told by the steel worker management, go to work. Okay, let's remember about these workers. They were ethnic European, but they weren't wasps. They weren't upper-class white people. They probably weren't even seen as white at all by the upper classes. But suddenly they were trying to strike. The factory owners were bringing in all these black workers as scabs, and the racial opposition became pretty stark. It seemed to the strikers like the black workers were the enemy. And that, by the way, is one way of illustrating the phrase racial capitalism, the way capitalism creates racial division to benefit the rich. Anyway, with the black workers as the enemy, that made the ethnic European workers suddenly feel white. And so this is really, we're seeing both um, kind of the consolidation of a white ethnic identity, the consolidation of like whiteness really in these, um, you know, Eastern European workers and the use by, you know, these corporate overlords. (laughs) They're doing everything they can to try to incite anti-black sentiments in these workers um, and say, these are black scabs that are making more money than you. What are you going to do about it? And it's not just where they're going to work. This is, you know, right in the the middle of the Great Migration. Between 1915 and 1920, the number of black steel workers around Chicago increased by 9,000%. And this is, uh, you know, they have nowhere else to go but into the, um, you know, even worse tenement houses surrounding the mills, uh, stockyards, and, and other plants spreading out from South Chicago. And so um, right in this mix of the steel strike, the Chicago race riot of 1919 happens. Big death toll, enormous um, injury toll. 2,000 homes uh, uh, are burned, mostly Black-owned homes. There's white mobs roaming the streets of Chicago. Some are led by, you know, Democratic Party members that, that see their defeat in the Chicago mayoral election as due to black voters, and they're literally, you know, pulling people off streetcars and beating them. So through all of this, the Gary Mill continued to offer black workers five dollars uh, to scab. They keep trying to spread rumors that black workers are breaking the strike, but in reality, and uh, I just want to shout out the the work of you know scholars like Ruth Needleman, Paul O'Hara that have really um, worked on this, and then. Black union leaders like Lewis Caldwell, who have shown that you know, the reality was that the majority of black workers that were at the mill were on strike also. So the mill was doing their damnedest to find uh, and pay picket crossers to bring in more scabs, etc. They even went so far as to you know, bring um, workers from Alabama in on ore boats to their fortress of a mill as a very small number of workers and then have them rotate through highly visible parts of the mill to try to make, you know, the the white uh, strikers even more angry. But, you know, union leaders like Lewis Caldwell 
were constantly trying to keep the steel strike from becoming a, a literally a white supremacist mob, speaking at mass meetings, urging everyone to you know stay on the picket line, um, and then doing a lot of this coalition building work of uh, being one of the you know first labor leaders to also start uh, simultaneous Spanish language meetings for an increased number of. Mexican workers who were, you know, also uh, brought in as some of the the first Latinx workers in the area. Um, This is where my mom's side of the family story kind comes in a little bit also. So it's a, you know, a story of this absolute heroicism, but newspapers, you know, obviously owned by corporate interests, the same as the, uh, the mills, continue to distort events, to continue to tell a story about valiant white picketers and black scabs, and eventually end up pressuring Gary to declare martial law and bring in federal troops and the Indiana state militia to try to end the strike. Newspapers were distorting events. They reinforced the stories of valiant white picketers and black scabs. The way the story of 1919 got told rippled out. It shaped segregation in Chicago and northwest Indiana. Backlash among white real estate agents led them to pioneer new techniques for segregation, like restrictive covenants. You might have seen maps of Chicago outlining literally where uh, homeowners were binded to sell only to other whites, which governed about 75% of all of Chicago's residential property for a very long time. That line Ava draws back from redlining to the steel strikes and white supremacist riots of 1919, you can draw it back even farther. Deeper, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it all goes back to the uh, to natural gas. And the legacies of those natural gas discoveries continue today in what we now think of as the Rust Belt. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about those legacies. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Eva Tomasula E. Garcia is a writer and scholar from the Calumet area. That's uh, northwest Indiana, for those of you not familiar. She's written about how natural gas discoveries made the region an important player for industries like steel. Gary was the center of that, and in the early 20th century, corporate owners tried to undercut a steel strike by bringing in black workers from the south. That had another effect, though, too. That concentration of workers in Gary, black and white, made the city an important one for both civil and labor rights. It was an incubator for the black power movement. Hatcher was the first black mayor of an American city, came out of Gary. We can think of, you know, the American labor movement and today the worker center movement of, uh, you know, trying to win rights in the workplace for the you know increasing number of service sector workers who are not included in in standard kind of unionization efforts a lot of that work is being done in Chicago and the surrounding kind of south suburbs bleeding out into Indiana because its economy was so dependent on steel it also meant northwest indiana was hit especially hard when steel prices collapsed in the mid 1970s Manufacturing shut down or left for cheaper labor in the South, Southwest, or overseas. That gutted the economies of cities across Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and more. Over the past generation, there have been huge changes in what work looks like around the Great Lakes. Thousands and thousands of people lost jobs and made the Calumet into a place that today is more synonymous with um, waste containment and management kind of vulture industries um, that have settled into the footprint that um, these larger companies left, pallet manufacturers, lots of metal recyclers. Actually, it's still extremely industrialized, um, so smaller um, kind of finishing plants, a Unilever soap factory, casinos, another kind of extractive industry, and the proliferation of, uh, you know, service jobs. We think of that region, broadly speaking, as being the Rust Belt. What's the problem with thinking about it that way? So in a lot of ways, you know, focusing on this kind of almost pornographic focus on deindustrialization, on decay, on urban decay, 
ends up reinforcing a lot of racist stereotypes. So if you, you think about how Gary's been imagined and painted since the 80s and since the, the steel mills left, it's not this vision of, you know, this kind of white ethnic minority immigrants that are working hard and it was hard work, but they got the job done and something to be proud of. But Gary's imagined as this place of urban decay and crime, you know, same as Detroit, uh, Flint, Michigan. So it's this very kind of racialized vision. So I see these as narratives that are very much kind of produced by these, uh, the interests, the interests of industry and, you know, and fed back to us and that we need to, you know, not buy. This kind of cookie cutter definition of industri- of deindustrialization has actually been in some ways a product of, you know, these, these, these industries themselves kind of painting this picture of victimization. When we think of, you know, the even Trump's election, left and right, there's this real narrative of um, shock and the blame being pinned on the quite on, on the quote working class of, of the American heartland, which is imagined as white which is not you know, completely the case. And it's this vision of decline um, and possible comeback. So if you think of Make America Great Again, it's this um, formulation of uh, both nostalgia for this imagined white supremacy or uh, of the past, and then also reaching forwards with this very apocalyptic vision too of, you know, of decay, which is just not politically, you know, useful uh, for the kind of uh, world we want to live in. If the narrative of the Rust Belt is a problem and is not really useful for us, what do you feel like we should be focusing on instead? No, it's an interesting question because, you know, you gotta, obviously the, you know, something happened here. (laughs) And I think you always have to be careful that the the storylines you make up in order to name and resist power. So something like deindustrialization or, you know, the the immense pollution of the area, the way that corporations for a hundred years plus have just completely polluted this place and had zero accountability about it. And so thinking of yourself as, you know, maybe a victim of that, and that's the story that you have to tell to try to fight for justice, you always have to be careful that that same story doesn't flip into something ugly then, and some, you know, it's opposite. That same kind of sense of victimization can be mobilized by something like, you know, make America great again. So I think it's, uh, you know, always uh, this is true of any organizing kind of... Um, any kind of movement for justice always has to you know be aware of you know the potential pitfalls in its own strategizing i guess but i think in thinking about the the midwest today and the rust belt you have to you just treat it as it is it's it's not this kind of you know failed utopia not this kind of space of apocalyptic decline and decay, but it is, um, you know, a very much an integral part of the history of this country and of the world that as lively and diverse and contradictory as, um, you know, the rest of the country. I said at the beginning that we were all engulfed in a world of fossil fuels. There's some truth to that. But when you stand on the south shore of Lake Michigan, you can look north of the vast expanse, sure, You can look west and see the smokestacks, those engines of industry and, turns out, climate change. You can also look around you at the dunes with their grasses and trees, and all the people playing soccer, sunbathing, reading, living different lives there on the beach and beyond. I think the way to avoid getting engulfed is to get specific, to learn about a particular place, and then to learn about other places too. Growing up, what Ava saw in the Calumet region seemed normal. And then one day she looked out the window and thought, Oh, this doesn't look like <laughs> a lot of other places. Um, how is that? Um, and I, I remember having a moment of kind of um, the background becoming the foreground and the kind of um, 
smokestacks and horseshoe casino uh, logo and, and so on that just formed a kind of normal landscape to me stood out as, you know, what they are. This, um, you know, you could call it a disaster capitalist sacrifice zone or, you know, any other number of things. And so the I was interested in figuring out um, kind of the, the history of how this area of the world developed. I hope this conversation makes you interested in how your part of the world developed. In one way or another, it's probably connected to Ava's part of the world, too. Okay, one last thing. This is from the archives of our classified ads. For sale. One bookshop. Doubles as a shining pillar of local culture and purveyor of a vast collection of relics and curios. We're the only place like this probably within 100 miles, at least. Includes stacks of storybooks, shelves of sci-fi, heaps of historical novels, and row after row of facts, fiction, prose poetry, and things you never knew you couldn't live without. There are so few places like this left. For those interested, inquire within the shop bearing the sign Caveat Emptor. It means buyer beware, and that just means, well, we have the book but we can't be responsible for your reaction to what's inside of it. Specifically, with Katie Brown, who has owned the shop since 2016. We never thought it was a possibility. We, um, like lots of people, we had come here for years and years, and it was the sort of place that, you know, you walk into and you think, God, it would be so incredible to own something like this, but that doesn't really happen. That doesn't happen to real people. The, the smell of the old books and the sight of the ladders and all of that, I mean, it was... It was one of those things where, again, like we would come here from time to time and just think, God, it would be so, I can't imagine owning a place like this. It's just so incredible, but you never think of that as being a reality. Brown bought the shop in the final hour before its previous owners were forced to close. A situation which she hopes will happen again. Yeah, we don't want to just shut it down. So it's, it's really rare. The store is a rare bird, and, um, you know, it would be a shame for the community to lose it. So... What, exactly, is for sale? The feeling of possibilities. You know, there's just, there's so much here. It's nice for us when people come in and just stand there and take deep breaths like, oh, I love that smell. I mean, it's really a community bookstore and most, almost all of our books come from the community. I think a new owner with a manager could come in and breathe a lot of life into this place. We just, we just can't continue it anymore. Sure, there's the price tag for the prospective buyer, but if Caveat Emptor disappears, there is also a hefty cost for the community. It's a place of ideas, and it always has been, uh, and it's been here for such a long time. We like to think that we have something for everybody. Um, and what's been important to us is to sort of be a conduit for the books that are in Bloomington. This has been in the community for such a long time, and um, we wanted to give as many chances as possible for somebody to step in and take over. And uh, we could simply close, but um, no, we just don't want to do that. So, once again, for sale. One bookshop. Seeking new owner to preserve an heirloom full of lovely old books, as well as a crucial piece of Bloomington. I think it's got a good spirit to it. Inquire within. That classified ad was produced by WFIU's Avi Forrest. Since then, Caveat Emptor did find a buyer, Dana and Jared Thompson, who also own Bloomington's Comedy Attic. 
All right, that's our show. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Eva Tamasula y Garcia. The article she wrote that inspired this interview is called The Long Tale of Indiana's Oil and Gas Industry. You can find it at beltmag.com. And thanks to Avi Forrest for the classified. All right, time for some found sound. listening to the sounds of the beach at Indiana Dunes State Park, June 2022. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.